All right, let's begin. So here we are, class 33. All right, so here's what we're going to do today. First, we're going to spend some time, since we have a, a somewhat shorter amount of uh, coverage to do today, talking about the exam. Um, I heard somebody say, yay, and then everyone else, uh oh. All right. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, some of the things. We've, we've already talked a little bit about some of this uh, part of copyright policy, but, but we're drilling down today into a particular policy change uh, that, that Congress instituted uh, several years back uh, to discuss how that, how that works and sort of the broader picture, which is the idea of using property, using the property law as an instrument of social policy, as, a, as an effort to um, tweak things, to make things, uh, well, in this case, to incentivize certain types of behavior, okay? Uh, and so that's, that's the plan for today. So let's talk about the exam, and this is interactive. You guys can certainly ask questions as you want. Um, so here's the plan, mostly multiple choice. Uh, again, as I always say, for some of you, it will be multiple guests. Uh, and uh, some short answer as well. Uh, again, the, the format is going to be very similar to what you've already encountered with respect to the uh, problem sets. Uh, most but not all the multiple choice questions will be directed to fact patterns. Again, the, the way I generally think about it is I write fact patterns like I would write uh, an essay question, but instead of just sort of stopping at the end of the question and saying, discuss, uh, I give you a series of questions that then try and zoom in on, on particular things that I want to uh, test. Um, so you'll use Scantron a bubble sheet for your answers and then also sort of like on this third problem set uh, have explanations uh, possible as well, although they're optional. Um, I don't think you'll probably have time to give explanations for everything, uh, nor should you expect to. Um, and there's no need to, to give explanations unless you feel like there's a, a reason to explain your work. Um, so therefore, bring number two pencils. Uh, it's open book, open notes, open computer. You just can't get help from any people. Okay? So your research teams in India, you need to <laughs> keep them off the table that day. Shorter is almost certainly going to be better. Um, and I'll talk about uh, some of that, the general hints and tips. So what I will do, so this is how the exam was uh, the last time I, well, not the last time, this is prior. Um, uh, so 50 questions, um, you know, the, the median for that year, it actually grows the next year, so it's not always that. Um, but you should, you know, these are hard questions. Uh, so <laughs> I don't... I don't want to sort of mislead. I don't know. Anyone who's been an engineer is like, yeah, this works. Um, you know, that's, it's, uh... Brittany. Hang on. Brittany's asking a question. Stop the chatter. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, so you will, you will have a Scantron sheet, and then um, uh, I will probably, and I haven't decided whether I'll reprint all the questions, you know, have the questions probably the way, exactly the way we did the third problem set, which is the questions that exam itself will have a little bit of space underneath to put your explanations if you want to give the explanations. So you'll turn in both at the end, okay? Um, but you shouldn't have to use your computer for either one of those, so no exam soft, the locking stuff. Um, so I would prefer that you circle your answer just so I can keep track of what you said so I'm not going back and forth. So it doesn't seem like that much of a hardship. But. I'll, I, these explanations, these, you know, the, the instructions will be hopefully clear. And here's something I will do. So I, I haven't finished the exam yet, although I'll redo, I, I reuse a fair amount of the questions. When I do finish the exam, I will publish to you the first page, just like this. I'll literally post the first page, which will show you exactly um, the breakdown of the questions, how many there are, how much time is allocated, so you can um, sort of get your head around what the um, uh, issue is. Uh, and, and any instructions, if they uh, seem unclear, you can ask questions about those, okay? Um, you know, so this is this is how the the exam sort of turns out. I'm usually very happy with the way the distribution uh, turns out, which is you know pretty much exactly like the distribution uh, of the of the grading scheme, which is a, a large cluster in the middle, and some people who do uh, well, and some people who do a little less well. Um, just it's fine. It's uh, and uh, that's the exam. All right? Questions about that, Jackie? Not necessarily, and you'll remember that there are other things that factor into the exam, so. <laughs> Everybody, like, focuses on the, I mean, you do realize that each one of these is, like, one person, too, right? Yeah, but that's what you were That's a fair point. No. First of all, you've seen. What was that? No. I mean, you're all going to have uh, classes in law school where you do less well than you want, and ones that you do better than you expected, and, and that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, this is the way it works. I wish that we didn't have to, uh, to grade you, but there are lots of reasons we do, and so this is part of the exercise. And I, I mean, I, you know, what I can tell you is I work incredibly hard to try and test you on the things that I want to test you on, which is the application of the legal principles that we've worked on in class, as well as some of the theories and policies, to fact patterns and things that you haven't, haven't seen before. So that's, that's the goal. I think that the way that, that my exams work, given that, that you know, I get these distributions uh, year after year, you know, they work pretty well. I'm always pretty happy with how these things turn out. I know that it feels weird that it, you're, you know, you're, the median is, is low, um, 
Those of you who are poli-sci majors probably feel like they should be higher. Um, but <laughs> not that I, I was an engineer. Um, but that's, you know, part of it is if everyone was up here, then I have a problem from the grading perspective because then, you know, things like one question makes a, too much of a difference. So better to have, have a nice spread, and I try and mix in easy questions and hard questions uh, throughout. When I do get the answers back, I do a number of statistical analyses on the questions to try and make sure, you know, well, it raises, whether they raise any red flags as far as uh, being unclear or something. In general, you like to see a nice, smooth correlation between people who get the hard questions right and who get other answers right as well. But that's the idea. Okay. Um, I have two questions. What is sure. it, will we get problems at feedback? Uh, as soon as I can get it graded. No. And then the second question, how do you... Yeah, the day after the exam. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Soon. Um, and then how do you quantify the 10% that's participation? How do, I quant how do I do that? So what I do is I go through um, and, and basically I have notes uh, and as well as uh, now that I know all of you, um, uh, I evaluate your course participation Everybody starts off, I grade on like a one to five scale. Everybody starts off, I just put a three for everybody and then start moving people slightly up and down. In general, most people end up with threes and fours. Okay. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Many of my friends are poli sci majors. All of these people, by the way, have graduated and have had very happy and successful lives. So just let's be clear. <laughs> That's just mean. He said, just not as lawyers, which is totally untrue. Hey, aren't you the one who said you were going to do your own pass-fail mechanism for this? Yeah. I'm still lobbying for it. There you go. You can do it you're on your own, right? So, you know, these people definitely were in the past fail okay. category. <laughs> <laughs> My question is actually about both sides, and I feel like if you end up with No, it means that there were there were several problems that were difficult um, beyond what I mean. In, I don't. I actually it usually turns out in the next year it actually turned out to be a little smoother. That more people got in the high forties uh, and fifties. There weren't any questions that nobody got. So the interesting thing is that that some some people get some and some people don't get get others. Um, so. I don't know. What was your question again? I'm still trying to... Oh, did they do something consistently wrong? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, here's my, my hints and tips, right? So this is my suggestions, and this applies not only to this course, which uh, it does, but also to sort of exams generally. So for my course, we're going to cover everything, and in fact, I track that on the exam when I'm writing it to make sure that I've got covered pretty much everything. I'm not going to guarantee that everything gets covered. Uh, or that everything gets covered in the same amount, 
but I do try and hit on pretty much everything that we do or read during the semester, so you don't have to guess, right? So that's, uh, that's a bonus for you guys. Uh, your other classes, you might have to guess whether something's going to get covered on the exam or not. With mine, you don't, because uh, it's going to be there. Um, and what I'm testing, again, is the application of the law to the facts, right? Um, and so I cannot emphasize enough that simply knowing the law, and this applies even more so in some of your other classes probably, that simply knowing the law is just step one, right? That's just the beginning. And that, I think, is the most common mistake, is thinking that because you know all of the law or you have an outline which contains all of the legal principles, that that's enough. That's just like the beginning. The issue here is that you're trying to apply what you know to a set of facts that are unknown to you and therefore require you to figure out which aspects of the law are necessary and, and how it plays out. So that's, that's what we test. All of us, uh, all your, your classes are going to test that, not the law. Um, and so while outlines and stuff I think are terrific and, and a really useful tool, they are just a tool, they are not the end of your process. And in fact, um, if it was me, I would spend less time on outlines and more time on practicing things like practice questions or working with your classmates on, on example essays or whatever. Right? Um, allocate your time wisely. I can't emphasize this enough either. So. I will give you uh, the cover sheet to the exam so you'll know, you know how many questions you need to be doing uh, for each you know, increment of time, you know, the short answer, et cetera, and just stick to it. Don't, don't end up spending a ton of time in the first 15 questions and then uh, not have time for the last 20. Uh, most people, uh, judging from their uh, answers, uh, most people do finish the exam, but uh, in talking to people, it's it's pretty time pressured. So you're not going to have a lot of time to sort of uh, lollygag around. So make sure you have a plan and you stick to your, your time allocation. If there's a question that's confusing to you, move on, go to the other ones, come back to it later when you have extra time. So I, I would say that. Um, this one is, is to some degree uh, a applies here, but probably also uh, most important for your essay uh, when you have an essay question, although for short answer I would say this too, don't regurgitate, right? What I mean by regurgitate is we can tell when you sort of panic and you don't quite know what the question is asking, and so you take everything that's in your outline and you just throw it against the wall. And you hope that those of us who are reading it and trying to grade it will see some <laughs> keyword or something and, and give you credit. It doesn't work, right? It just makes your answers look disorganized and, and looks like you don't uh, know what you're doing. Uh, I can't say it never works. I don't know how my colleagues grade always. But in general, it's pretty clear when somebody's sort of grasping at straws. So don't regurgitate. Pick an issue. Oftentimes, yeah, particularly on essay questions, even if you don't hit exactly the right issue, there's still some points available for that. Short answer is going to be the same way. Even if you're not exactly right, don't feel like you have to put you know, your entire chunk of your outline into the two lines that I give you. Um, so don't, don't feel like you have to write more. More is not definitely not better. How are you grading the uh, explanations for the multiple choice? So is it just like if we got the wrong answer but and justified in a certain way? Yeah, so the, the way that I'm, I'm doing is similar to the, to the problem sets, which is, 
So first of all, you get the right answer, I'm not even going to look at your explanation, regardless, right? So that's, uh, and that, it can never hurt you to have an explanation. Um, now, if you get the wrong answer, and then I've identified uh, that question uh, through the statistical analyses as being one that's, a, there's, you know, that it's either hard, unusually hard, or where there's a lot of variance in the answers, then I'm going to go back and look at individual answers to that and see if there were explanations provided. And at that point, it's, it's uh, you know, par either partial credit or available, or if it's clear that you got the right answer given something that, that you said, then you might get uh, full credit. So that's the idea. And again, it's optional. You don't have to. And in fact, I, I hope that in many cases you won't even have to do an explanation. Okay. Given that we don't have access to prior exams, are there certain recommendations you have for, for practicing applying long terms? Yeah. Um, so I think, so first of all, you know, get over the, the term, I've basically given you almost an entire exam of 45 questions, right? So you have pretty much been, been given an a, a exam, so the format's going to be very, very much like that. Um, second, I think that, you know, I don't know of any particular other sources. I do think it still would be valuable to look at even essay questions from other, you know, either from some of the supplemental outlines you can get or from other courses or whatever. I mean, I, to me, anything you can get that, that gives you a new set of facts that you can then go and try and apply the legal principles to uh, is going to be the, the most useful thing in terms of studying. And being able to do that again and again uh, is, is really what, you know, what we're testing. Um, so, you know, I would not, if I was you, I wouldn't hesitate to use anything you find that looks like a, you know, a, a property hypo that might have um, things you can do. And if you find ones, I used to find ones a bunch um, that, that wouldn't have answers. You know, they would just be like examples. And, and for those, my friends and I would each, you know, work on them and then swap answers and talk about them. So that's another possibility. Jared? How much time do you have that? Well, so it, I, because it isn't done, I don't know yet. I try and give you between two and three minutes per, question, per multiple choice question. Um, the short answer, I'll probably give you a little more, so I'm just going to have to add up the number of minutes at the end. Again, you'll know uh, when the exam is done, which is usually two or three days before um, exactly how much time. It'll be somewhere between two and three hours, I would expect, something like that. And prior years, I've known you've given the practice exam in class, or maybe for homework and then gone over it in class. Will you do that this year? Um, so I was... I was thinking yesterday I need to find uh, what I've given out in past years, which is a not a practice exam as much as just the same thing as the problem set that we've already given. Um, I think I might have used some of those questions for the problem set, but uh, I'll look and I'll see. Whatever I've got, I'll let you guys look at. So. All right. How about the short answers? Where to, is it like three lines or is it like... It's the same thing as on the, on the problem set. Right, so you'll have a, a question uh, and three lines or so of space there to, to answer the question. So, so not like the wireless router uh, No, I don't think I'm going to give the, the longer essays in part because I'm, I'm worried that the time allocation would be really difficult for you guys unless I did something like divided the exam in half, and then that gets pretty complicated. So I think uh, I'm... I'm, you know, very happy with how the 
the multiple choice goes, uh, has gone in the past, I think the addition of the explanations will certainly add a, a big component of, of uh, uh, time to, to the grading, but I think that that's worth it because in some, some cases that helps out. Uh, and then the short answer should, should apply for it. There's some questions, some topics I want to cover that are sometimes difficult to get into multiple choice. So I think the short answer can help there. Here. On those short answers, will you just be writing directly onto the test like we have here? Yeah, that's the plan. Write neatly. And don't write all down the margin and up the other side. I mean, that's, I mean you can if you want, but it, that does not help. <laughs> Uh, I think I'm just going to let you decide what you need to do. I think citing of cases can be very useful because it's a very shorthand way of telling me what principle you're applying, right? So uh, it can save you a lot of time and space to simply say, you know, following the rule of Army versus Delamire, we're going to do X, Y, and Z. That's much quicker than saying following the rule that the finder gets, you know, in explaining all of that. Um, so I'm not going to say you have to, but... I think it can be useful. And there will be times, I mean, I don't think you guys should worry about it, but there will be times that I refer to cases, but I think by the time you get in the exam, I can assure you, you will know all of the cases. Yeah, I mean, again, saying something like first finder, if it's unclear which of the first finder rules you're using, then make sure I know, but yeah, yeah, you can be clear. And by citing a case or by not citing a case, it's, what matters is that I can figure out what you're trying to tell me. And again, brevity, clarity, being short and to the point is, is very important. I haven't decided yet. It'd be less than 10, I would think. That's, that's at least right now the idea. Somewhere less than 10. Mm hmm all right, so let's talk about that, maybe. Um, so here's, for, for next week, I'm going to have expanded office hours. Uh, Monday, 1 to 2 is my usual time, and then I'll go after class uh, until 6. Um, uh, next week, uh, Tuesday, 2 to 4, Wednesday, 4.30, 6.30 after class, and then Thursday, which uh, you guys will be on the reading period, right? Uh, 11 to 12. So lots of extra office hours next week. After that... Um, I'm going to go, we'll go by email uh, or by if you want to post questions to the blog. I don't know if you guys, you guys may have um, blog accounts, but if you don't, that's fine. You can send me an email. And what I will do is answer those questions also on the blog. This turns out to be a pretty useful way to review uh, for everybody so that you'll know that if people are asking questions, um, uh, I will answer them. And I'll do that up until 6 p.m. The, the night before, meaning that anything I get before 6 p.m. I'll answer sometime that night uh, before um, uh, the exam the next day. That, I actually think, is a lot more efficient than doing a review session, which usually consists of me standing here uh, for an hour and people asking fairly random questions uh, that they haven't thought through completely. I think I find, I actually find that the, the exercise of writing your question down uh, will often either clarify things or 
uh, make it a lot easier for me uh, to uh, to answer and uh, and so forth. So my preference would be to not have a review session. That said, I don't want to cause any additional anxiety, so I will send out uh, a poll of some sort, and and you guys will get to choose uh, whether you want a review session. I do not believe it's useful, but uh, you can vote however you want. Uh, and if you guys want me to come in for an hour, a couple days before the exam, uh, and stand here, that's fine. <laughs> Happy to do that. <laughs> totally fine. All right. Anything else? I think a review session would be much more useful if you just sit there and summarize the entire course. In an hour? In an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, there's always the downside of the review session when the when somebody asks the exact question on the exam, right? So that always raises the uh, the difficult challenge of what to do in that situation. No, what, what answer should I give? Should I give a mumbling half right answer, or should I give a uh, teasing? Yeah, it has happened actually. It has happened. <laughs> I gave the right answer. And then I took it off the exam. <laughs> All right, anything else? So look, I, I don't want you guys to be stressed. On the other hand, you know, this is, you guys have three weeks. This is, you know, this is going to be a lot of work. Uh, I think that you should, uh, you know, think of this as, as, you know, an interesting challenge. Everyone has ever been a lawyer has gone through their first semester of exams, and it's, you know, everyone has survived. Could be worse. Um, and uh, are points not at all touched in lecture still fair game? Are what? Points that you didn't touch at all in lecture still fair game? Yes. Anything assigned could be fair game. <laughs> so, like, if I skipped a case or didn't discuss one of the notes behind the case or something like that, sure, those are all potentially fair game. Okay. <laughs> Are we allowed to email you questions? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So and and uh, so, but from now on, I'll try and post those those questions to the blog, just so that people know, um, just so that people can benefit from your question, which they very often will. Okay. Now. Um, let's say for some reason you don't understand something from the book and from our notes and from watching your tapes over and over. Um, <laughs> is there like a supplement or like any, where would be the best place to get an answer if you don't understand a concept? Not something that we could ask you directly for a question, but if you don't. Why not ask, right? Because like, it's on the exam and then you take it off. <laughs> 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 right. So, exactly. These guys are like, hey, we'll just ask a lot of questions. <laughs> supplements I would recommend. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never really looked hard enough at the supplements to know how well they match up with what we actually do here. My experience with those is that um, they're pretty good at, like, black letter law stuff, but generally not good at all about theory and, and knitting things together. So if it's a big conceptual question, I think you're unlikely to get that from a 
commercial outline. I think your best bet um, is either uh, asking uh, by email or your classmates, which I think 99% of the time your classmates will help you out. Do they have a Do they have a supplement? Yeah. Sure. Right. So that's probably basically the casebook distilled down how they sort of think of it. But I haven't even actually looked at that, so I don't know for sure whether that how well that matches up. All right. Anything else? Okay. All right. Do you have further questions? Let me know. Okay. All right, so let's talk about IP and social policy uh, for today, uh, which is our actual topic. Um, so we've talked about this some already, so the, the, me the mechanisms of intellectual property rights. So again, the, the intro here is this, this class is about using intellectual property, about using property concepts to try and achieve particular social policy goals, right? And, and copyright is certainly not the only way, and IP is not the only place we do this. I mean, you can even look at the overall enterprise of property law as being intended to achieve a number of important goals. But there's other areas. Copyright is one. Um, uh, fishing, the uh, fishing quotas is another, uh, where we have very specific uses of property concepts to try and achieve particular kinds of goals. Pollution controls is another one that's emerging as well, where we are increasingly using property concepts by giving people rights to pollute and then allowing them to freely trade those rights. That's using a property mechanism to achieve a particular societal goal. And, and IP, we're doing that, right? That And IP is the oldest um, and, and uh, of probably, well, the oldest of these sort of special forms of property rights that are intended to achieve a particular kind of goal. Um, and so how do they work? Well, they allow what we call super marginal economic returns, meaning it's non-competitive market because you have an intellectual property right. You're not sort of competing just on the level playing field. You, as the intellectual property holder, have a small advantage. How big that advantage is varies tremendously, but uh, it can be small or large depending on the the um, approach. So in a competitive market, the prices approach your marginal cost. Marginal cost is, of course, the cost of manufacturing the good or the service, wherever that is. Uh, and then a less competitive market, the prices are going to rise above the marginal cost. And you, as the intellectual property right holder, are going to get extra income because of that. Now, when you do that, that means you get incentives to do whatever it is that the intellectual property right is trying to, to encourage you to do, right? So in the patent context, we're trying to get you to invent things because um, we want more inventions. We want more innovation of the sort uh, that patents have. And so you get extra money um, by having this market power uh, and being able to have some pricing power. Copyright is similar, right? We want to encourage people to express uh, their to uh, express their ideas, to publish their ideas, and so therefore we offer copyright protection so that people can't compete with you directly, higher costs or, or higher uh, revenues for you, uh, and therefore you get incentives to do that, right? Um, now you often see, particularly in sort of the mainstream press, uh, IP rights as uh, described as monopolies, but they're almost never monopolies. Why? Why are they not? Why is it inaccurate to call an intellectual property right a monopoly, even though even the Supreme Court does sometimes? Right. Well, 
Exactly. Almost never is it the case that there's a true sort of economic monopoly with respect to an, a good covered by an intellectual property right. Um, you know, if, if the, the cost of the latest Justin Bieber I, uh, album is just too high for you, then switch to something else, right? Uh, and, and similarly, if the, the cost of the, the newest widget or smartphone is too high because of the patent rights uh, associated with it, then there are obviously other alternatives as well. So the fact that there are almost always substitutes, maybe not direct substitutes, again, that's the entire point of having intellectual property rights is that there are not direct substitutes, but there are reasonably close substitutes means that your ability to charge sort of monopolistic prices is greatly curtailed, right? One caveat to this is that there is one area where we do see almost monopolistic uh, type pricing and, and uh, economic returns, and that's in pharmaceutical drugs, right? Where very often the patents are closely associated with a particular drug uh, that is the only drug approved for a particular condition. Now, under those circumstances, you will have what appears to be pretty close to sort of monopolistic pricing because there really aren't substitutes, right? If there are no other approved drugs for that condition and the only approved drug for the condition, in fact, is patented, then the patent, in effect, uh, offers something close to a monopoly. But note that that's actually not because of the intellectual property rights, right? That's because of the regulatory regime that limits uh, what, what can be, what is the approved treatment for particular uh, diseases rather than the IP. It's the interaction between the regulatory regime and the FDA and the patent system rather than um, the intellectual property rights themselves. So even though you might see in uh, some cases or in the, the media IP rights described as monopolies, they're really, they're not. They're just not monopolies. They are, they do allow um, prices to be above marginal cost, which allows for good economic returns, super marginal economic returns, which then generates the incentive for people to do whatever it is that, that we want them to do. Right? Now, the, the, you know, the, the implications of, of using the property rights mechanism, I mean, we didn't have to do this. Right? We could have done to encourage people to innovate or to, to do creative expression, for example, we could just pay them. Right? We could just say, hey, if you're a creative person, a good musician or a good uh, artist, you're on the government payroll. Right? But we don't do that. Right? We use the mechanism of property rights because we, want, we think that it might be better to have the economic reward determined by the market rather than by the government. Right? We are suspicious of the ability of the government to select for us um, who uh, is worthy of uh, being paid to do whatever it is, and so the economic reward is determined by the market. So that means the economic reward varies with one measure of social value. It's not right to say it varies by social value, although many people say that the more money you can make, that's a good metric of social value. It's certainly a metric of something, right? It's certainly a metric of how innovative your invention is or how creative your work of expression is, uh, the more money you can make. Um, but it's, that is, of course, not this, quite the same thing as social value. And also, by using the property concepts, we can you have great flexibility and adaptability, right? People can do things with property that you often can't, uh, you wouldn't be able to do if we were just hiring people to invent things or to, um, to create things, which is, you, you know, they can sell their goods, they can lease, they can, they can subdivide, they can be um, uh, uh, remunerated in various ways, they can lease and so forth. So... Um, that's the idea, is we're using this property concept to try and generate 
the type of activities that we want. Now, there are downsides to this, of course, right, which is we're going to have less competitive markets, right? And, and we talked about this earlier in the semester with the deadweight loss. And if you have above um, uh, marginal cost pricing, you're going to have some deadweight loss. You're going to have some people who don't have access to either the uh, work of creative expression or um, the invention uh, because it's priced higher than would otherwise be the case under a purely competitive market. Property rights can stimulate undesirable behavior. What type of undesirable behavior? Well, um, they can, they can in encourage people to, to race, for example, and to try and, if there's a particular kind of, of um, uh, disease that seems to be increasingly prevalent, people can race each other to try and, and uh, solve that disease. On the one hand, that might be good, uh, but on the other hand, that can be wasted effort as well because people will... Um, uh, uh, both be sort of duplicating efforts. So there are losses there. Uh, people can behave um, uh, undesirably once they have property. They can refuse to let other people um, uh, use their, their property rights. We often think that's good, but that might not always be good, right? Again, sort of back to the, to the job principle where we want to you know, uphold owner autonomy, but at the same time, there are certainly cases where the societal values might outweigh the individual owners and values as well. Um, can harm future activities, right? The fact that you have a copyright on a particular song can limit my ability to um, create a new version of that song or, or, um, or so forth. Uh, and uh, same thing with, with patents. And then there's significant costs associated with having this system. I mean, the fact that we've built this structure of uh, intellectual property rights has major costs, right? We have a copyright office, we have courts, we have an entire structure that goes to support this mechanism, and that's all cost, right? And again, this is sort of the key question, which is we need to ask ourselves in all cases, and this is what we try and do anytime we're using property rights as, as our mechanism, we're trying to, to get somewhere into the high end of this curve, right? Here's, if this is your social benefit, and the rights get stronger as you go out this direction, there must be somewhere sort of a happy medium where you have reasonably strong rights to maximize overall social benefit. Note that's not maximizing the benefit of the IP owner, that's maximizing overall societal benefit. Um, but at the same time, if your rights are too strong to the IP owner, then society benefits less. Similarly, if they uh, aren't giving enough rights, then, then that's uh, not as beneficial as it could be. And in all cases, the question is, where are we on the curve, right? Because if you increase rights, you increase incentives, but you also increase the overall costs. And so the question is where you fit on this curve, right? So where we fit on this curve, it was um, brought up uh, just a few years ago in, this, in the Eldred case, right? So the Eldred case is the Copyright Term Extension Act. So who wants to tell us about what, what Congress did? What did Congress do in the Copyright Term Extension Act? I bet you can guess from the title. <laughs> I mean, they basically extended copyright terms um, by 20 years. So it was life plus 50 years, and they wanted 70. Exactly, right? So the, the most basic change was they... Um, shifted the, the term of copyright to the life of the author plus 50 years to life of the author plus 70 years. They also extended it for corporate authorship uh, and so forth. But the big change was a uh, life of the author plus um, uh, uh, 
70 years as opposed to 50 years, right? And they did so even retroactively, right? That meant that copyrights that were then existing suddenly got an extra 20 years of term on it, right? So, so the first question is, what's, what's the cost to the public of extending the copyright term? I mean, who cares, right? It's just a little bit of benefit to, to the copyright owner. What's the public cost? It's already that much longer until the thing actually goes out into the public domain. Okay. So yep. Our free, our free consumption of it is not allowed. It's delayed for another 20 years. Good. Yeah. Okay. Um, things that were already in the public domain now get taken out. In some cases, yeah. Yeah. Things that could have gone, you know, for those that were in this period between when they ended and the extra 20 years, they would, they got removed essentially from the public domain. Jack? For the parts that are retroactively um, enforced, they aren't serving the social purpose of incentivizing creation because it appears to have already been created. Right. So it seems implausible, obviously, that, that somebody could have been incentivized to create more stuff when, um, they didn't even know they were going to get the other 20 years until 70 years later, right? But let's talk about this in some more detail. What is, how many copyright, copyrighted goods do you think are worthwhile? I mean, remember what this term is, life of the author plus 70 years, right? So how many copyrighted goods do you think are, have social value or have value at all at the time of 20 years after the author's death? As a percentage of the total? Sure. Five, ten percent. Okay. Maybe. Higher, lower? What do people think? Lower? Probably even lower, right? I mean, I, it seems like... So, the issue here is unbelievably small numbers of copyrights have value, period. Right? Uh, you know, have actual economic value, much less those that have sort of the staying power to, um, uh, to extend for that long after the author's death. So, so one thing to ask yourself is, is there a cost? I mean, if, there's, if we're only talking about a few works here, right, that will really matter, I mean, the rest of these works won't matter, will they? I mean, what happens if your if your copyright loses value? Anything? No. I mean, do you care if people use it? Probably not. Right? So will there be a cost? Or is this just a costless thing? Maybe, sure, it's a giveaway to Disney and a couple of other uh, uh, related copyright holders. But other than that, who cares? Am I right? There was an interesting point uh, Cosmo made at the end of the chapter that said, um, let's say, yeah, for example, a work that's sort of, uh, you know, it's been there, it's had its time in the sun, but now that we have extended copyrights, we're encouraging people to sort of revive that, bring it back into the public. Because if you have a property right, you're more incentivized to actually resurrect something like that. Good. So, right. So, in fact, I mean, so you might argue that this is, the net might be a benefit to society yeah. because for those people who have, let their, uh, you know, let their copyrighted goods sort of, you know, lay fallow, they might 
sort of re-energize them, republish that book, right? Maybe remaster that that uh, music uh, or that that song or whatever, and and move uh, that way. On the flip side of that, though, I feel like there are probably a lot of works that only have very small niche markets. So no publisher is going to bother republishing these really obscure texts from the era. But if it was out in the public domain, maybe you know the few thousand people who'd be interested could access it freely. Okay. And so it ends up just being completely in because the publisher doesn't. But if, it's, but if it indeed has some value, you would think that the copyright holder would do something with it, right? Not if the value is fairly... I mean, the value has to be in proportion to the amount of profit they can get out of it, right? Okay. And the, okay. it might be very difficult to really juice it. Yeah, right. So the issue would be... So you're saying there's going to be a class of goods which have... They do have social value, right? Because people would like to use these goods. But the value is low enough that there's not incentives uh, under a copyright regime... To, to do anything about that, to run the presses, to make the books, or whatever. And so when we then extend copyright, we're just delaying what would otherwise happen, which is people would use them for free, which is a good point. Now, how, many, how, how, much, how much do you think that really matters in this life of the author? You know, you have 50 years and then 70 years. You know, you have the author's life. And so what we're really talking about is this you know, that range, right? So, you know, it's a small group, probably at this point anyway, and then the question is, is there, are there ones that would, that would nonetheless have significant social value in here that were somehow curtailed? I, I mean, I do think so, especially if you look at, like, literature and music, styles change very quickly once you hit the 20th century. Okay. And so the difference between something that was written in the 20s and something that was written in the 40s is enormous. Okay. So having that window open earlier by the time that you get to the death of the author plus 70 or whatever, then people who would have been interested in that might already be gone. Good. Yeah. All right. Good. Further thoughts? Just cost? Is there a big cost? So there might be. It's hard to know. It's, it's an empirical question. Why was Congress in the... Yeah. Claire. Okay. I was going to say that now with like e-readers and Kindle and then the iPad and everything, I know that they put, there's a lot of websites they put a bunch of books so I read a lot of like thousand questions because sure. that is like the free stuff you can download. So I feel like it with this new technology, there actually might be. It's like you don't even need a publisher to come and print the book. You can just right. So that incentive mechanism that you might otherwise think would encourage people to distribute some works during this time period might not be needed at all anymore. Right. So that would argue probably even more strongly that we don't need an extension. Right. Yeah. Good. So why was Congress doing this? On when they published their works? Okay, well, sure, but why, why extend it at all? Right? I mean, that's why they did it retroactively, right? So that's why they, they, when they did the change, they changed everybody at the same time. What, was, what, what were they doing? Um, they basically, there was like the EU directive that basically said that they extended their copyright to that length, and um, Congress basically wanted to make it so that U.S. authors had the same copyright protection because they knew that the EU wasn't going to give them the same protection that they were going to give them to. Okay, good. Yes, yeah, slightly, I mean, a slight tweak on that, which is the U.S. was a party to international treaties, right, and these treaties established baselines for copyright protection worldwide. 
uh, and we were out of compliance, basically, with the treaties. Uh, and we would, uh, to bring ourselves in line with Europe in particular, but other places as well, we needed to extend our copyright. So that's one rational reason which the court finds is enough to, to um, uh, get over the hurdle of, of uh, constitutionality. So do you want the, the official story or the cynical political choice story? Yeah. So, uh, so Europe has always been, and particularly in the copyright, Europe has been, uh, in the copyright area, Europe has been quite strong. France, for example, has very strong views about copyright for authors. They have very, um, uh, they're very protective of authors. They have long copyrights. They have a lot broader copyrights than we do in the U.S., and so they have always been pushing sort of in the European context for longer and stronger copyrights uh, in particular. Um, the, the primary proponent, however, at the, at the WTO for this, this treaty um, that was uh, eventually signed on by the U.S. Uh, turns out to have been an American company. Anyone want to guess? You got it. The lobbyists at Disney... Uh, actually tried to get Congress to extend copyrights uh, for, for a couple of, uh, well, probably for about five years, uh, and were never successful. So in a very clever move, uh, they went and, and lobbied uh, a, at the WTO and got the treaty uh, that everyone would sign uh, to have an extended copyright, and then came back to the U.S. and said, well, now you're out of compliance with the treaty. You like that? Not that I'm cynical about how this all works, but it's pretty much the way it works. Yeah. Uh, wasn't another reason to go with the goal of the copyright and patent clause of the Constitution just to promote the progress of science, and then they gave justification reasons, such as that like it doesn't really hurt the public because they said the like, readers of authors' writings still could use the facts or ideas they acquire from the reading. Right. So this sort of goes to the first question is, you know, what, what Congress said it was doing was promoting progress, right? And the constitutional question that was asked in Eldred uh, to the Supreme Court is, does this retroactive extension of term, does it meet, does it comport with the constitutional requirements um, of, of, uh, to, to promote progress? And so, yes, Congress thought it was promoting progress. Now, it has to point to particular things, right? And and there were plenty of uh, economic studies that actually showed that probably from a, you know, baseline economic perspective, extending this 20 years was probably more of a hindrance than a help, right? It probably, uh, particularly for the retroactive uh, impact, right? As Josh suggested, it's unlikely it would actually increase incentives to anybody, right? I mean, would you, would you create more stuff because you knew that your heirs would get an extra 20 years of, uh, of extension? Unlikely, right? Uh, and so it seemed like from an economic perspective, it was all downside. On the other hand, the upside for the, the Congress's uh, act was that it made us in compliance with international treaties, which has the effect of helping uh, American authors overseas. Um, and there was at least one other argument that, that was made for why you would want to have a, a retrospective um, extension of copyright. Wouldn't that allow the to 
Exactly. So Hollywood came to Congress and said, you know, we've got these films in our vaults, and they're all from the early days of film. Turns out they're all rotting away, right? And if we don't do something, they're all going to be gone forever. But you know what? If you give us another 20 years of protection, we'll convert these things over to DVDs. We will remaster them. We will now have the incentive to reinvest in our film archives and therefore... Um, you know, preserve these forever. Congress went for that. That and campaign contributions. But again, <laughs> yes? Oh, you mean, sure, but of course the, the authors, you know, the people who, who would gain... I mean, obviously, everybody who's going to create from now on gets 70 years, and that, that's, that's clearly rational, right? It may not be right, but it's clearly at least rational on the part of Congress to do that because it does marginally increase incentives, right? The, the issue here, the constitutional issue is, is it rational to retroactively extend to, to people who already had made their copyrighted work is it fair, is it right, is it rational to give them that extra 20 years? That was the real constitutional question. There's no question that if Congress wanted to just add 20 more years, they can do that. I mean, it might be dumb, but that, it's at least rational. Um, but the question was whether or not this retroactive extension uh, would work. Now, so would it increase the ability to sell? Yes, but probably to people, and the people it would actually affect would be the ones who had already died, whose estates would then have an extra 20 years of of protection to sell, right? So, yeah, it might help, but it's not going to encourage progress, is it? I would say, like, if you're a screenwriter, say, yeah. if the film knows something, or if the studio knows something an extra 20 years of royalties, what it will pay you for your play will go up. Oh, sure, right. But that means, but that's assuming you haven't created, but let's say this happens um, the day after you've already created your screenplay, right? No, I agree with yeah, so then that, it doesn't affect your incentive at that point at all, right? Okay. All right, so, so that's what Congress was doing. And so what the Supreme Court held is that this was okay, right? This was constitutional. specifically made sure that, that everybody got the benefit. So one is what Carol said, which is they, they said fairness, right? Why is it fair that somebody gets 50, you know, life plus 50, and the person, you know, a day later gets life plus 70? That doesn't seem fair. Uh, I don't know, you buy that? No, I don't really. I think it's, I don't know, Right. I mean, in general, we don't think that people always get the benefit of, you know, whatever the best deal is that comes along later. So, so yeah, they said that, but there are actually some other arguments, and one is this argument about um, maintaining the film archives, right, which is that's a reason you might want to give it retroactively, because these people have already made their films, and we want to give them the extra incentive, basically give them a little subsidy to go and preserve their films, right? And uh, the other issue was the 
to make sure we're all in compliance with the, the overall mandates of the of the treaty, right? So yeah, I, I agree. It seems <laughs> that's just a random person. Lobbying for indefinite, uh, or infinite increases in the length of copyright? Like, what? When is it? Why? <laughs> <laughs> why? I mean, not why, but like, are there limits? Yeah, to stop them? I mean, yeah. So, what's to stop them? Are there any limits? That's, that's, you know, what do you think? I mean, you, you guys read the opinion. Are there limits? Or they, can they keep just coming, going back and Assuming the appropriate contributions get made to the appropriate packs, uh, is this just going to keep going? There's no way to prove that you're going to infinitely increase or infinitely keep extending it. I don't know how you would prove that those future Congresses will do that in the future. Right. Yeah, I mean, this was a problem, right? I mean, you can keep saying, oh, they keep extending it, but Supreme Court said, well, it's still limited, right? And, and so, yes, life of the author plus 90 years is still limited. Um, it's, uh, you know, slightly less limited before, but it's still limited. And that, under, under what they said was, was the law, was uh, rational. So are there limits? Do you think they can just keep going back and getting an extra 20 years every time uh, their stuff starts coming up? Well, I'm sure Disney's going to try. That is sure, right? <laughs> but that's too easy. I mean, at some point, there does have to be a, I think at some point, there needs to be consideration for not everybody needs this. That those who want it, like, I really, I like the post article. I thought that was really legitimate. That not everybody needs it. Those who need it should have the option. Okay. Because it's the ones that, the things people are concerned about are the ones that are making money more than the ones that aren't. Yes. And so... The people who have the interest in maintaining their copyrights so they can keep making profits, I think if they want to go through the hassle of renewing their copyright like the original copyright laws were, I think that's completely legitimate. But I don't think it should be extended to people who just have no interest in maintaining their copyright. Yeah. They're just getting this benefit just out of sheer luck that Congress can't be bothered to differentiate. That's fairness. Right? But do they need it? Yeah. Oh, they almost certainly don't. So it's not, it's fair right, so, so my question, though, is do you think that the Supreme Court, after reading Elder, do you think that is a something they will take into account? Doesn't seem like it. Yeah, there's certainly not a lot there. So what are the limits? I mean, sure, they might feel like this is a dumb move, but are there limits to what Congress can do, even if it's not good? Does the copyright clause say explicitly there's a limit of time? So sure. But life of the author plus 90 years is limited yeah, just like this is. The question of, is there an unlimited duration? I think just to, to that narrow question, no. Right. I mean, that's that. I mean, they could. The question here is can they just go in, in 20, in, in 19 years when the, the Disney, the relevant Disney properties are about here, can they say, oh, here's your next 20 years? Is there anything that stops them? Given the recent debt debacle, I would say no. They can just continue to do this ad nauseum. Even if they put their own uh, trigger exploding mechanisms in, they'll just delay those. So. Okay. So you don't have a lot of confidence. We're asking about the Supreme Court, which, of course, is above all of the political frame, right? <laughs> right. 
Doesn't convince you? Not really. Yeah. Eddie? Do you think we'll Okay, so you would say you, you feel like there's a stronger reason to extend copyrights that are sort of corporate in nature and less so for individuals? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there, there are different amounts, right? It's, I guess it's 95 years now for a corporate author. Um, and, they, they, I mean, Congress clearly differentiates them. Whether they would split them, you know, raise them at different rates, I'm not sure. But, I mean, that's a possibility. The question is, is there anything to stop them from just continuing to do this? Are there limits in the Constitution to what Congress can do with respect to this, uh, this extension? Good. Yeah. So many people are both consumers and creators of intellectual property. So you might think there's a, a nice balance there. Um, and so that's that's actually worked well in the patent context that there hasn't been a big move to extend the patent term and things like that. In part because a lot of the very same people who create patents are also the, the primary users. Um, so there there is less pressure to do that. What about this? We're you know Congress takes testimony from, oh, I don't know, we'll say entertainment companies, who says, we're tired of people writing these nasty reviews about our latest movies, right? So no more fair use. And they just strike out that part of the, the statute. Can they do that? I think that would violate the First Amendment. That was kind of the whole, that fair use clause is kind of what keeps copyright in and of itself from violating the First Amendment. It, it seemed like that was what the court was saying. Okay. Oh right, no, they are. They are decide. They decided that at, with respect to the term extension, that they were going to analyze it under rational basis review, right? Which, as we saw on Monday, basically means as long as you can create some sort of plausible reason that this is um, going to be good, then they're not going to pass on the wisdom of it. So the question now is: Are there aspects of the copyright law that would get different treatment? That would get a more searching review? Now, Phil has said he thinks that. Fair use would get a, a much more rigorous review. They would have to show a lot more in order to abolish fair use because it is fundamental to the interaction between copyright and, and, and the First Amendment. And I think that's one way, uh, and, and the right way, I think, of reading the, 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 um, the court's opinions, that they say, look, we're not going to do anything about this term extension business because as a formal matter, you're still limited times. But don't touch uh, or don't think that you can uh, abolish things like fair use 
or eliminate the idea expression distinction, which we didn't cover in course, but, but when you do copyright, you will. Um, so these, the court thinks, are fundamental to not simply be promoting the progress principle of Article I, Section 8, but instead fundamental to how copyright interacts with the First Amendment. And that without these sort of safeguards and protections in place, then copyright itself would be subject to uh, serious question. And so I think the right way to read Eldred is that term limits, it really doesn't seem like they can stop them, that the court is, is likely to stop additional extensions of term limits. Um, now, abolishing fair use and eliminating idea expression is a different story, and I think that the, certainly the, uh, although that wasn't raised and it wasn't really at issue in Eldred, the court's language certainly indicates that it would take that much more seriously. There is, by the way, a court, uh, a copyright case dealing with a similar issue to this uh, that's at the Supreme Court right now. They argued it in October. Um, it's uh, called Golan versus Holder, and the issue here is um, it, Congress decided to retroactively grant copyright to foreign authors who originally did not have copyright. The, the way that the law worked uh, was that foreign authors originally did not have copyright on their works in the United States. And in 1994, Congress granted uh, their own copyright. So they'd already made their work. They were all in the public domain in the U.S. And then Congress went and took them out of the public domain um, uh, in 1994, and that is uh, at issue um, this, this term in the Supreme Court. So we'll get a little more information about what limits, if any, there are on, on Congress's ability to change the parameters of copyright. So you guys also read the, the Posner article. How many people think that's a good idea? Yeah, it seems like pretty sensible. So why haven't we done it? So why not have every five years you have to pay 30 bucks? And if you don't pay your 30 bucks, your copyright lapses. If you do pay your 30 bucks, you keep your copyright for another five years. Okay, there'll be some administrative costs. So you could set the five bucks to cover that, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's a structure to deal with. Okay, maybe, although one would presume that the copyright office who was administering this would simply have a list of people who paid and didn't pay, right? So you could pretty easily look up whether they've been paying their fees, right? Why are, the, why are authors, in particular, lobbying heavily against this kind of idea? They're fighting it vigorously. Maybe because they think it's, you know, their property, they shouldn't have to renew it. Good. Yeah, it's property. We don't have to renew. You don't have to renew your house. Why should you have to renew your copyright? That's one argument. Anything else? There's also a lot of instances where works aren't valuable initially. They get discovered maybe 20 years later. Good. And then they suddenly become worth millions. Good. And if you decided early on that you didn't really care about renewing your copyrights and wasn't making any money, you could lose that right and then suddenly become incredibly valuable and you have no claim to it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so there's a concern that there would be people who didn't recognize the value of their copyrights at, at a particular time and, and didn't pay would then later regret that. Going back to Rainey's personhood theory, even if your copyright isn't valuable, you may feel some sort of ownership over it, so why should you have to pay $30 to keep it? Sure, yeah, exactly. This is this is inherent part of your personal property. Why, why are you forced to continually go to the government to re-justify your ownership. Right. 
if there's a slippery slope argument with Doug, and if you agree that, oh, yeah, I'll pay 30 dollars instead of five years, who's to say a terminal can't say five years? Say, hey, we're going to raise this to 100 dollars, and then five hundred dollars, so on and so forth. Sure. Yeah, they could. And and so what would be the problem with that? Just that then a lot of people aren't going to have copyrights anymore? No, I mean, it's just that if it's my copyright, if it's my yeah. property, I mean, once you agree to it, it's like you, you have your foot in the door. Right. You can't then say, oh, okay, I'm going to pay anything. Once you agree to $30, you don't know what you're susceptible to. Right, although you could always just say, I'm not going to pay the 500 right? And then you lose your, you, you lose your copyright. You do. You well, but if it's worth billions, then you're definitely going to come up with your 500 bucks. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. So they are, they are concerned that there are authors out there whose copyrights would be of relatively low value who would not sort of renew and then would regret it for various reasons. True. Oh, yeah. No, then that would be definitely a reason that as an author you might not want it. Good. Exactly. And, and if you sell your presumably worthless land uh, and someone discovers gold or oil on say, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's actually been an interesting sort of political discussion when these things have been proposed um, that, that, in general, the authors, authors in particular, the, the musicians are less, they're more into this, they think it's fine. Uh, movies doesn't seem like a big deal. Again, those are often because uh, those have big corporations sort of behind them, which they think they can handle the administrative oversight of keeping up with these things. Uh, authors in particular, the people who sort of just are going to write books and they're mostly individuals, are very concerned about, about having to, you know, deal with this every five years. Jack? Uh, I have two things. Sure. The first one about, about musicians and stuff, is that potentially because where book musicians things aren't going to be likely movies and a declining asset. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. Things like paintings and books tend to have a, a lifespan that can stretch much longer. And then my second thing is um, sort of what Ryan was saying about it being a slippery slope, but a, a slippery slope not just in terms of money and being able to charge more, but a slippery slope in terms of if you can do this to copyright, yeah, I mean, you can make the argument about taxes on property, but can you do that to my water bottle? Can you be like, well, you want that water body, you've got to keep paying for it. Good. I think that's really silly. Sure. That's a, a silly... Uh, right, but that's, so that's, just, you know, that's a great segue to this next question, which is, is it useful to even talk about these things with a sort of a property... I mean, would we not be better off with respect to the policy of copyright to say it's not property? It is, you know, you don't own anything. You're just sort of getting this right from the government, and we can give it to you or take it from you or charge you a tax or not charge you a tax at any time. It's not your property. Does the fact that we call it property then mean it gets infused with these things that we feel like, you know, in particular you've seen this case where, where people are proposing a perpetual renewable copyright where people get very um, wedded to this idea that it's their property, no different than their house is their property or their Water bottle is their property, and they feel like the rules should be the same in some sense. Um, well, I mean, that's kind of like this idea of supposing the fact that your ideas, in a sense, are rented from the government almost, and you know, like your ideas and the labor you put. No, it's not your ideas are rented from the government, it's that your right to have super marginal economic returns 
are a benefit the government gives you, right? Just like any other benefit the government gives you, they could change it at any time um, if they felt like the social policy overall was better for it to be changed, right? right. But it seems, I mean, it seems like it's a type of lease that you're leasing your 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 uh, property, your your song. You're talking about property that. again, yeah, yeah, right? You're leasing your 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 production from the government, okay? Which which seems to kind of go against the whole capitalist system that the country's founded on. But even more so, it, it does seem to me to, to especially with art, uh, that's an expression of your your inner self. So kind of in the in the personhood theory. That uh, Zizi was saying, it just seems like to have you leasing that in any form from the government just doesn't seem right, you know, at that level. Okay. Yeah. Um, like from Dempsey's point, um, I know we don't think about it this way, but in terms of creative activity, there are externalities imposed by it in terms of access to it, how much people can mm -hmm. restrain. And like Dempsey said, we create these things to capture these externalities. So maybe that's an argument for it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I mean, the, the, an interesting thing is just to think about whether or not um, it's useful to even think about this because IP is pretty different from property, right? On the other hand, that might not undermine the case at all. In fact, in some cases, it might actually strengthen the case for property rights uh, in intellectual creations. Um, but it's different, and we use this language, we use a lot of the tools of property to accomplish a set of goals, um, and I think that it's useful to to think to step back from time to time and think about whether we're um, whether the uses of property in this context is actually helping or hindering us from getting to the overall social goals. All right, so that's it for today. Uh, tomorrow we're going to do eminent domain for so the kilo case, uh, and I will see you then.